Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the, my name is Carl Drake, and I'm a member of this congregation. I want to extend a special welcome to everyone joining us here and online this morning. Since 1870, UU Wausau has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. We are currently worshiping both in person and online, so be sure and subscribe to the church's newsletter. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram for updates. And with that, we have one announcement that I will make. Today is the kickoff for the 2022 stewardship campaign. In several days, you will be receiving a pledge form for your gift for 2022. The theme for this year's drive is three words. Persevere, endure, and faith. In this time of COVID insecurity, we must have faith in the fact that our church is there to provide spiritual, if not emotional support, so that we may endure and persevere successfully as we strive to get on with our lives. So I ask you to respond generously as you complete your pledge commitment form to ensure that our church will continue to be there for us, providing spiritual support at a time when we sincerely need it. And with that, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the church's chalice lighting. You will find the words printed in the order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Please join us in the opening hymn number 128 for all that is our life.
you would, join me in the recitation of the congregation's affirmation. The words are printed in your order of service. If you wouldn't mind, stay standing or get back up. <laughs> Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest of truth is its sacrament. And service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve human need, to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other. And now our doxology. This morning, our Time for All Ages is adapted from a story by Joy Berry called Let Go and Let Goo. But this morning, I'm going to need a volunteer, a brave volunteer, who might want to come up and help me get our story set up. I might ask you a question, but we're all going to help, so it's no pressure. Would anyone like to join me, adult or child? I know there's one brave little girl at the back who would like to join me. Come on up, Mia. So as Mia does the 50-yard dash up front, what we have up here is a wonder box, and I wonder what could be in it. Mia, can you open our wonder box and tell me what is inside? What do we have here? Um, a caterpillar and a butterfly. You want to open up our butterfly? How does a caterpillar get to, to be a butterfly? Do you know? Um, it goes through a transformation. It goes through a transformation. It starts out as a... Egg, and then it goes... Yep, fantastic. Thank you so much, Mia. So yes, our, we go. We started egg, we go caterpillar, we go chrysalis, and then we go butterfly. Thank you, Mia. So when a caterpillar starts at life, it starts in a little egg on a leaf, and it hatches out, and it starts eating. You all know the story of the very hungry caterpillar, right? It eats, and it eats, and it eats, and then it grows, and grows, and grows. And soon, it is a big caterpillar. Now, when we grow bigger, does our skin grow with us? Yep. Caterpillars do not. So as the caterpillar soon gets too big for its skin, it wriggles out, and underneath it has a new skin, just like you might wriggle out of a shirt that's too small for you. <laughs> this is called molting. And the caterpillar is going to do it four or five times in its life. It eats and grows, and it splits its outer skin, and down the back, and it doesn't hurt, and it crawls out and is dressed in a new skin, which fits much better. Finally, the caterpillar attaches itself to a stick and a twig, and then it hangs upside down, getting ready to shed its skin one more time. This time, the skin underneath looks different. It's a chrysalis, and this is what the caterpillar was wearing underneath all those skins that it grew out of. At first, it's soft like the caterpillar was, but as the caterpillar hangs upside down in its chrysalis, it begins to change, and we call it a pupa. The chrysalis gets harder 
and harder to protect the pupa so it changes, it can change one final time. I wonder, has anyone here ever found a pupa or seen a pupa out in nature? Kind of looks dead, doesn't it? Like nothing really is going on inside. But actually what's happening inside is really amazing, but you'd never know it from the outside. The caterpillar is gonna change into something completely different. Because inside of a chrysalis, the caterpillar's whole body is turning into a kind of goo and breaking down. And everything that was once a caterpillar is being changed by something called an imaginal cell, which is going to turn into anything that creature needs. And turning into body parts, it didn't need as a caterpillar, but it might need now, like wings. Through luck and grace, remember grace are those gifts that we are given but have not earned. When it is ready, it'll wriggle out bit by bit, and its wings will be crumply and wet, and it'll dry out a bit, and it'll pump blood into its wings, and when it's strong, it'll be ready to fly. In the case of monarchs, those gifts of grace might have been lots of milkweed and flowers with nectar, the right temperatures, the right amount of sunlight, the gift of time. Monarchs, for instance, take 22 to 37 days to go from egg to butterfly, and eight to 14 of those days are spent in the chrysalis which doesn't seem very long to us, but when you consider that butterflies in adulthood only live two to five weeks, and that last generation, the one that migrates to Mexico, only lives for eight months, that'd be like us waiting four to 20 years in our chrysalis to go from caterpillar to butterfly. Can you imagine waiting for years, hanging upside down by a thread, inside your tiny chrysalis, unable to move, feeling your entire body breaking down and changing into something completely different. How do you think they would feel? Awful. Awful? Maybe excited? Scared? Worried? A caterpillar doesn't know what's happening to it. It doesn't know it's changing into a butterfly. It doesn't know it's growing wings or that it'll fly or it'll be beautiful with colorful patterns. It just, if it knows anything at all, it just knows it's time to let go. Sometimes people talk about change and they say it's very hard to accept. Some people say let go and let God if they believe that God is in charge and everything will be okay if we stop worrying so much. If caterpillars talk to each other, I wonder instead of saying let go and let God if they might say let go and let goo. Because what's happening, the whole caterpillar's body turns into mush and it pushes itself back together again and builds a brand new body out of goop. Human beings, unlike plants and animals, often find acceptance and waiting and change hard. But even when we feel like we are in a puddle of goo and just want everything to change now, the ability to believe that something amazing is happening inside of us or around us or that something is changing us or the world is a special kind of gift. In caterpillars, it takes imaginal cells. And in people, it takes a special kind of powerful imagination. Some people call it hope. Some people call it grace, some people call it trust, and some people call it faith. But whatever you call it, there's no denying that somehow there's an amazing plan that lets a worm grow wings and unfurl itself into a beautiful butterfly. So anything can happen if we are willing to let go and let the gifts of the world happen to us. And that is our story for today. And even though our RE kids are not going to their classrooms this morning, let us sing our children's song as a blessing to those who are here and those who are joining us from afar. Remaining seated, please join me in singing, May Peace Surround You.
like to invite everyone to join me in the spirit of prayer and meditation. I invite you every week to pray with your whole body, to meditate with your whole body. I recommend you start by putting both feet flat on the ground. Take a moment to become aware of your heart and your breath, the person or the people you came here with, or the people who joined you to make up this community this morning. Let us journey into silence with these words. Holy wisdom, holy breath, holy spirit of life, you show us what is good and shower us with blessings. It is said that the first, that the last shall be first, and so we give thanks for all who work for justice, for those who pour out their lives making peace, for those who serve in hospitals and homeless shelters, for those who try to stop the violence they see and replace it with love. We give thanks for those who bring music to our ears and hope to our hearts, for those who brighten the world, for those who show up no matter what to lift us up when we're down. We give thanks for valiant women and for righteous men, for all who have heard God's word and follow the call to be grace to everyone they meet. And we give thanks for one another, for this community that reminds us no matter what we're going through, we don't have to go it alone. And now let us call to mind the joys and sorrows in our lives and let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Please remain seated for hymn number 123, Spirit of Life.
The mission and ministry of UU Wausau is made possible by the generous support of its friends and members. Rather than pass a plate at this time, <clears throat> we've placed an offering basket in the back of the sanctuary for you to drop a gift in. You can also stop by our website, uuwausau.org, to make a one-time or recurring gift with your credit or debit card. Thanks so much for your support. Uh, today's community-focused collection, the first of the year, will be received in support of Proud Theater. All offering gifts received will be given to Proud Theater to support their mission and program. Do we have a speaker from Proud Theater? Great. Tell us. Wonderful. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for allowing me to be here today. Um, my name is Evelyn Bromberg, and I am the current program director of Proud Theater. So first of all, I just want to thank you all for welcoming us back to the church for our weekly rehearsals after over a year and a half of not being able to gather in person. Um, I also want to thank you for the generous opportunity to receive the offering from today's service. Um, for those who are unaware, uh, Proud Theater is a youth theater program that works to make a positive difference in the lives of LGBTQ youth and allied youth by empowering them to share their own stories through original theatrical works, which they then present to the community. Again, I want to thank you all for being so welcoming and generous to us, and we thank you for your continued support of this unique experience for youth here in central Wisconsin. Thank you all. The reading I've selected this morning is from Paul Tillich's book, The Shaking of the Foundations. Paul Tillich, for those of you who don't remember or don't know, was a 20th century theologian. He taught for a long time at Union Seminary in, in New York City. 
uh, immigrated to the United States in World War II, sort of a forced immigration. Uh, he made the cover of Time. If you could imagine a seminary professor making the cover of Time today, anyways. Um, so this is what he says in the book. It's about grace. So he writes, grace strikes us when we are in great pain and restlessness. It strikes us when we walk through the dark valley of a meaningless and empty life. It strikes us when we feel that our separation is deeper than usual because we have violated another life, a life which we loved, or from which we were estranged. It strikes us when our disgust for our own being, our indifference, our weakness, our hostility, and our lack of direction and composure have become intolerable to us. It strikes us when year after year the longed-for perfection of life doesn't appear. When the old compulsions reign within us as they have for decades, when despair destroys all joy and courage. Sometimes, sometimes at that moment, a wave of light breaks into our darkness, and it is as though a voice were saying, you are accepted. You are accepted. Accepted by that which is greater than you and the name of which you don't know. Do not ask for the name now. Perhaps you'll find it later. Don't even try to do anything now. Perhaps later you will do much. Do not seek for anything. Do not perform anything. Do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. Here's the end of the reading.
Well, good morning. It's nice to see all of you. I've been reading about the ancient church, as one commonly does, this last week, and I stumbled upon this little gem in the Epistle of James, which Martin Luther called an epistle of straw. I thought that was funny. Um, <laughs> so here's a bit of straw. Quote, the wisdom from above is, pure, is first pure, then peaceable, then it's gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits. It's without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? I'm going to reread that line. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and you do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on pleasures. And here's what James says to his congregation. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. So basically here, James, our epistle writer, he's being Midwest nice, which people here in Wausau, of course, none of you know anything about being Midwest nice. If James wasn't trying so hard not to offend everyone, here's how this long thing would go. Y'all can be some jerks. And you know better, so be better. I just spared you the whole book of James. That's the summary right there. So, but before I move on, what I want to do is I want to comment on James's language of submission because submission has many connotations, some of which contradict our church's teachings. So let me be clear. Submission in this instance means to give your life by choice to something worthy of your life. The prophet Micah comes to mind whenever I read James. If you remember in Micah, what he says is, God has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do, anyone? To do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly. Now, I am convinced that Unitarian Universalists know what God wants us to do and know what God wants us to be. I don't think that's the problem. The problem with living a life of faith is not that we don't know what it is. Rather, the problem is that we know clearly what it is, but we dare not risk living it. We're too busy, I'm too busy, during the week or the month or the year to think deeply about what we're living and dying for. It's football season. It's baseball season. There's a lot to think about. We're also busy making money. We're making decisions and we're making everything in sight but not making time to discuss the nature of our habits for growth. Now, I think this ancient teaching applies in all eras, but one of the distinct ways it applies to us is, the wide, is that widespread in America is a nasty thing called selective empathy. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to tell two stories that I think convey what I mean when I say the phrase selective empathy. One of them comes from the news, and the other one is, is personal to my life. The first one, I'm, I'm grateful to my wife who has social media. I don't have social media anymore. Uh, I haven't had it for a long time, so I wouldn't know what's happening in the world unless my wife sent me what she sees on Facebook. So this first story comes 
uh, from Murfreesboro, Tennessee, where my cousin Heather lives, if you're wondering. And so a young man, what he did is in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, he went to the local school board. You might have seen this on, on, um, on Facebook, he, or you can find it after church. What he does is he goes to the local school board and he, in this passionate way, he tells the school board that his grandma and his grandpa died of, of COVID. And what do you think these people did? They mocked him and they heckled him. You can watch this video for yourself. That's literally what these people did. Where does this kind of evil come from? And now a personal story. So in my hometown of Farmington, Missouri, about a 60 mile uh, drive south of St. Louis, a 38 year old man with a somewhat prominent job working for the city, he was mildly, mildly vocal on Facebook about his decision not to get a COVID-19 vaccination. He wasn't annoying, he wasn't redundant, he was just upfront about his concerns and his decision. And so four months ago, my dad and my stepmom, they called to tell me, they said, they said that he had gotten sick and he ended up testing positive for COVID-19. In fact, he got so sick that the doctors put him in the hospital and he ended up spending the next three months getting moved in and out of the ICU. Three weeks, three weeks ago, when I got back to Wausau for my vacation, my dad called me on the phone and he told me that this man, the son of a family friend, had died. He left behind two kids, he left behind a wife, he left behind his mother and his father and a grandmother and dozens of friends and family members who loved him. But if you looked on social media or if you read the comment section in the local newspaper that ran his obituary, what happened was an explosion of comments, and I'm quoting comments like this, karma's a you-know-what, you reap what you sow, and other mean things like that. In fact, the vitriol got so bad that his sister-in-law, on behalf of her own sister, took to social media and pleaded with the public to understand that it is not okay to use someone's death as an opportunity for you to grind a personal or an ideological axe. Just yesterday, I was listening to National Public Radio going on a drive, and I listened to psychologists and counselors, and what they were warning is that this kind of behavior, which is widespread on both sides of the ideological aisle, what it's in fact doing is it's stigmatizing COVID victims and their families, and it's recreating a dynamic like that of the AIDS crisis in the 1980s. Now, I'm going to ask this congregation that I know is very smart a rhetorical question. How many of the people who heckled the young man or wrote messages like I'm describing knew what they were doing was wrong? All of them. All of them knew they were being evil. A man dies, a young man mourns and pleads, and people rush to dunk on them rather than offer a sliver of empathy or even just their silence. So a few weeks ago, David French, who I read all the time, he pointed out that our public discourse, I love this distinction, he says that our public discourse is full of religious zeal, but it's spiritually impoverished. 
People who need grace, they receive condemnation instead. And genuine friendship is replaced by factional alliances. And too many of us withhold empathy so we can be sure that you receive our judgment first. So on this topic, Paul Tillich, who we heard from just earlier today, who's probably the 20th century's most important theologian, he writes this, quote, do we still know, do we still know that it is arrogant and wrong to divide people by calling some people sinners and other people righteous? Buddhism has something to say about this, and the Dhammapada, the Buddha, reminds us, and I quote, it doesn't matter how many spiritual books you read if you don't practice what they teach. What benefit is there if you don't act on holy words? So what Paul Tillich taught is he said that the word sin is better understood as the word separation. And what he means is this. He means that within all of us is brokenness. We engage in bitter disputes. We're hypocrites. We point out the splinter in people's eyes, often avoiding the log in our own. Eddie Hilsium was a Dutch author who at 29 years old, she died in a Nazi prison. And her insights into the human condition are amazing, at least they are to me. And here's one of them, quote, we human beings cause monstrous conditions, but precisely because we cause them, we soon learn to adapt ourselves to them. Isn't this true? We watch the news at night and we see war, and it's normal. This is terrifyingly true. And Martin Luther King Jr. was aware of this tendency too, and back in 1966, he was invited to preach the, to the Unitarian Universalist at the General Assembly held in Hollywood, Florida, and he called on us, quote, to be maladjusted until the good of society is realized. King called on us to fight the monstrous conditions without and the monstrous conditions within, and to be never-ending, to be never-ending maladjusted to bigotry, selfishness, and violence. And this is a daily battle we must wage in our hearts. Because a humankind that suffers from selective empathy is one that's become accustomed to judgmentalism. King believed that the beloved community isn't possible if this is the norm. And so let's take a detour and talk about community. So St. Augustine, he spent his entire life living in community. And so he came up with this thing that he called the rule. Now, the rule is an honest, unsentimental guide for living in the challenges of community, and it's well acquainted with the heart's crooked bent towards selfishness and snobbery and greed and exclusion. So the rule confronts the realities of condescension as well as the holier-than-thou worldview. We all know someone holier than thou. I'll spare you having to ever read Augustine's The Rule because I'm gonna sum up the book for you in one tiny little sentence. Are you ready for it? I'm saving you hundreds of pages. Here's the summary. Pride lurks even in good works. You get that? Pride lurks even in good works. In other words, whenever we think we're being righteous, what you should do is you should check yourself before you wreck yourself. Augustine wrote the rule as a guideline for real-world friendships where people are prone to egoism. He wrote the rule because happiness isn't possible without friends. 
Happiness also isn't possible in an echo chamber. Augustine said, quote, whenever you go out, what you should do is you should walk together. And whenever you reach your destination, you should stay together. True friends, true friends are a sure bet when it comes to getting your ego put in check. So the Unitarian minister, Theodore Parker, he picked up on this Augustinian thread 1,400 years after Augustine was alive. And so in 1848, Theodore Parker preached a very, very influential sermon entitled, A Discourse on the Transient and the Permanent in Christianity. It's only like 14,000 words. It probably took like 90 minutes to two hours to preach. You're welcome. I'm not going to preach that. So in it, he said that in actual Christianity, there are two elements. The one is transient and the other one is permanent. I'm going to tell you what that means. The transient short-term element is our thought, our folly, and the uncertain wisdom that leads us to follow pop culture and whatever the hot topic of the day is. The other, the permanent thing, is the truth. So Parker believed that the eternal truth could be summed up in one command. You've heard this before. Thou shalt love thy Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And Lao Tzu says the exact same thing in the Tao Te Ching, and I'm going to quote it. Nothing but good comes to those who love others as they love themselves. And what Parker wondered in his sermon, what Parker wondered for his congregation is this question, what in those words can perish? Let me try and make Parker's point using an illustration. Now this is a bit of a thought experiment, but I hope, I prayed about this this morning, I hope it's not a terrible one like my philosophy professors used to use that bored me to death. I'm indebted to Barbara Brown Taylor here. And here's the experiment. I want you to imagine telling your kid, or just imagine telling someone that you love, someone that you really love, imagine telling them this. Hey, buddy, I know you're gonna fail, but I've got some house rules. I'm gonna treat you like crap until you tell me how wretched you are, and then, only after you tell me how wretched you are, I'll give you a little bit of grace. That's abusive, but that is culturally acceptable. Yes, everyone recognizes that raising a lawless child is not good for the child, it's not good for the family, and it's not good for society. But we don't guide our children to obey us so they can gain our favor because our children, the people we love, they already have our favor, don't they? I just love my child because. I love this congregation just because. Knowing that we fall short of our best attentions, we teach them because it's good and it's safe. And knowing the power of human love, the question faithful people have asked for generations is how much greater than our love does the holy love us? If you open up our hymn books, sometimes we sing these words, immortal love forever full forever flowing free, forever shared, forever whole, a never-ending sea. And it's this teaching of immortal love forever full that was lodged in the heart of our church founders. And some of our church founders were martyred, and some of them gave everything to leave us this message. There is a love in this world that can find you 
even in the darkest nights. Love when you're hurting and doubtful and addicted. The words for this love are grace and acceptance. And what is grace but an understanding that you might never have been, but here you are. The timing of your birth isn't an accident, and in fact, life wouldn't be complete without you. Yes, beautiful and terrible things will happen, but don't let fear rip you apart. Let yourself be transformed by it, because when fear isn't transformed, it's transmitted. And so let your pain be transmitted into grace and acceptance. And I believe that life is a gift, but like any other gift you've been given, you have to reach out and take it. And so take it. That's what James wants us to realize. It's what Eddie and Martin and Augustine want us to know too. Every day is grace. That's what all the great religions tell us. Every day that we're on our feet breathing and opening our eyes and ears and hands is a day of grace. Every day is a day of grace, which means that it's a fresh opportunity for us to, to be productive. We might have had an unproductive yesterday. We might have even been negative yesterday. We might have been salt in someone's wound yesterday, but today is a new day. Our identities aren't closed systems. They're open, and so are our lives. We don't have to stay wedded to old images of where we want to go or where we want to be. And you don't even have to start big. In fact, I always like to start small. And so start by asking, what am I doing today? Yes, there's brokenness in you, and yes, there's brokenness in me too, but your life isn't an accident. Every day is grace. And today is a new day. Amen. I invite all of you to rise in spirit or body for our closing hymn number 19, The Sun That Shines.
May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. I encourage you all to relax and enjoy the postlude. You're in for a treat. I've heard the practice this week, and it'll be nice to say hi to you as you make your way out.